This is the Personnel Committee of the County Transportation Authority of the City and County of San Francisco. Uh, my name is John Avos, the chair of the committee, joined to my right by uh, Commissioner Eric Marr and Commissioner Scott Weiner, to my left by Commissioner Malia Cohen and Commissioner David Campos. The clerk of the committee is Ms. Erica Chang. Uh, we are also being broadcast today by SFGTV and the SFGTV staff who are with us broadcasting are Greg Burke and Jesse Larson. Thank you for your uh, work. And uh, Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements to share? There are no announcements. Okay, we've done roll call. Could you please uh, call our next item? Item number two, approve the minutes of the June 20th, 2013 meeting. This is an action item. Colleagues, any comments about the minutes? Uh, seeing none, uh, we'll go on to public comment. Any member of the public would like to comment and see no one come forward, we'll close public comment. And uh, could we have a motion to approve the minutes? Motion from Commissioner Marr, seconded by Commissioner Cohen, and we'll take that without objection. And minutes are approved. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call our next item. Item number three, closed session, public employee appointment slash hiring executive director. This is an action item. Okay, this is the uh, meat of our day today is to talk about uh, candidates that we have met with as a personnel committee. And this will be a closed session item and we'll need to prepare the room.
SFGovTV online at sfgovtv.org. The site features online caption notes for all of our programs. And you can share SFGovTV video links directly on Facebook and Twitter. Audio podcasts of SFGovTV programs are also available on iTunes. Go to the podcast section of iTunes and search for SFGovTV. Log on to sfgovtv.org now. Watch us live and catch up on the latest on San Francisco government and culture. On December 28, 1912, San Francisco Mayor Sonny Jim Rolfe stared into a sea of 50,000 of his constituents who had gathered at the intersection of Geary and Kearney. The throngs of San Franciscans had assembled to savor a moment in history, the birth of the first publicly owned transit system in a major American city, the San Francisco Municipal Railway, Muni as it would come to be known. Happy birthday, Muni. Here's to the next hundred years. Hello, San Francisco. Halili here with another list of buzzworthy activities. Good for feel-good fun on the cheap. It's a jungle out there, but Wednesday is free admission day at San Francisco Zoo. Enjoy seeing the 250 different animal species in naturalistic surroundings and enjoy a vast array of zoo activities and events. This freebie is only for residents of San Francisco, so be sure to bring proof of your hood. The Hula Hoop is back. This Saturday in Dolores Park, enjoy a fun-filled day of hooping, kundalini yoga, acoustic jamming, and curtain, which is call and response chanting. Hoop the Flow, Invited SF, and Dharam Deep Yoga join forces to present this free gathering at 11, and donations are graciously accepted. Experience the Victorian-era architecture of the city's first suburb on Sunday at 2. As you walk the neighborhood of Lafayette Square, you'll also learn about Victorian lifestyles and San Francisco's illustrious history. Some steep streets, but the fabulous views make it well worth the effort. And that's the Weekly Buzz. For more information on any of these events, visit us at sfgovtv.org and click on Weekly Buzz. And while you're on the web, check out our YouTube page and scroll through some of our original programs. Thanks for watching. I am so looking forward to the street fair tomorrow. It's in the mission. How are we going to get there? We are not driving. Uh, well, what do you suggest? There are a lot of great transportation choices in the city, and there's one place to find them all, sfmta.com. sfmta.com? It's the new Muni website, walking, biking, parking, and Muni. Look, now it's all right here in one place. Oh, sitting in front of my computer weighing transportation options, that is not exactly how I want to spend my Saturday night. Look, the new SFMTA.com is mobile friendly. They redesigned it so that it works great on a tablet, smartphone, or a laptop. It's built to go wherever we go. Whoa, cool. But let's just take the same route tomorrow that we always take, okay? It might be much more fun to ride our bikes. I am going to be way too tired to ride all the way home. Okay, how about this? We can ride our bikes there, then we can take Muni home. The website even shows us how to take our bikes on the bus. So simple. See right here on my phone. Neat. Well, we can finish making travel plans over dinner. Now let's go eat. How about that organic, vegan, macrobiotic, gluten-free pop-up restaurant? Ugh. Can't we just go to the Irish-Ethiopian taco truck? Fine. Want to walk or take a taxi? <laughs> taxi? Wait, hold on. Look, there's an alert right here telling us there's heavy traffic in Soma. 
Let's walk there, then take a taxi or muni back. That new website gives us a lot of options. It sure does, and we can use it again next weekend when we go see the Giants. Why is that? There's a new destination section on the website that shows us how to get to AT&T Park. Nice. There's even a latest news section, a calendar, Twitter alerts, information on parking, all kinds of stuff. It's so easy to use. Even you can use it. Now that's smart. Are you giving me a compliment? Yeah, I think I am. Well, thanks. Now you can buy dinner. SFMTA.com. Access useful information anytime, anywhere. December 28, 1912, San Francisco Mayor Sonny Jim Rolfe stared into a sea of 50,000 of his constituents who had gathered at the intersection of Geary and Kearney. The throngs of San Franciscans had assembled to savor a moment in history, the birth of the first publicly owned transit system in a major American city, the San Francisco Municipal Railway, Muni as it would come to be known. Happy birthday, Muni. Here's to the next hundred years. The birth of Muni had been a long time coming. For over 60 years, the city's transit system was a disjointed conglomerate of privately owned companies. Horse-drawn conveyances commingled with steam, electric, and cable-powered vehicles, creating a hodgepodge of transit options, none of them particularly satisfying to city residents. The city's transportation system, like the city itself, would undergo an upheaval of monumental proportions on April 18, 1906, during the Great San Francisco Earthquake. The devastation that ensued from the 8.4 tremor and the fires that raged for three days in its aftermath would change the face of San Francisco's transportation system once again. Facilitated by under-the-table payments by city boss Abe Roof, overhead wiring was strung on a decimated Market Street just 10 days after the quake, ushering in the era of the electric streetcar on Market Street. The writing was on the wall. The clamor had begun for a new civic experiment, the progressive vision of publicly owned utilities, including a public transit system owned by the people and for the people. The idea of a consolidated city-owned and operated transit system had finally begun to gain traction. And in 1909, in its fourth attempt at passage, voters went to the polls and approved a bond measure that would create a city-owned streetcar line. The People's Railway, as it was called, would become a reality three years later. On December 28, 1912, Mayor Sonny Jim Rolfe, to great fanfare, introduced the new Geary Electric Streetcar Line and the new San Francisco Municipal Railway, which he promised would become the nucleus of a mighty system of streetcar lines, which would someday encompass the entire city. San Francisco's selection to host the Panama Pacific International Exposition gave further incentive to expand the city's embryonic transit network. A decision was made to link the Panama Pacific's exposition grounds to downtown by way of a tunnel leading into Chinatown and North Beach. On December 29, 1914, the first streetcar was driven through the Stockton Tunnel. Just over two years after its birth, Muni had added five permanent lines. Construction of the J Church Line and the Twin Peaks Tunnel followed, as did the K, L, and M lines that fanned out from West Portal. 
1928, the N. Judah Line opened, heading west to Ocean Beach through the new Sunset Tunnel. In 1944, San Francisco voters finally approved Muni's takeover of the Market Street Railway. By then, motor bus and trolley bus improvement had given those vehicles the ability to conquer San Francisco's hills. After the war, most of the streetcar lines would be replaced with motor or trolley bus service. In 1947, Mayor Roger Lapham advocated replacing the Powell Mason and Washington Jackson cable car line with motor coaches and it appeared that San Francisco's iconic cable cars had seen their final days. Enter Friedel Klussman. Mrs. Klussman became the leader of the Citizens Committee to Save the Cable Cars. Arguing that the cable cars were a symbol of the city, Klussman championed a charter amendment to preserve the cable cars, which was placed on the November ballot. It passed overwhelmingly. The California Street Cable Railroad Company, which also ran lines on O'Farrell, Jones, and Hyde Streets, was purchased by the city in 1952. There were cutbacks to the cable car system, and as of 1957, only three lines would remain. The Powell Mason, Powell Hyde, and the California Street lines. The three lines that exist today. In 1964, the cable car's future as part of San Francisco's transit system was sealed when it was proclaimed a National Historic Landmark. In February 1980, Muni Metro was officially inaugurated with weekday inline service in the subway. During that same year, two years after Muni pioneered paratransit service in 1978, it received its first fleet of buses equipped with wheelchair lifts. In 1982, when the city's cable car system underwent a two-year shutdown, a historic trolley festival was established as an alternate attraction to the city's storied cable cars. The festival was a huge hit in the summer of 83 and would continue through the next four summers while a renewed interest in a permanent F-line that would extend all the way to Fisherman's Wharf gained momentum. As of the year 2000, the F-line to Fisherman's Wharf was in place. In 2007, Muni completed construction of its T-3rd line, extending rail service to the city's southeast corner and returning streetcar service to 3rd Street for the first time in 60 years. In the course of the last 100 years, Muni's diverse workforce, forged by men and women of innovation, has reflected the many cultures that flock to the city. Muni's groundbreaking anti-discrimination and accessibility policies crafted through the years have guaranteed equal opportunity for all. The city's Transit First policy mandates the course for the future as the SFMTA works diligently to increase mobility options, pursue multimodal transit alternatives, reduce the city's carbon footprint, and improve the quality of life for all residents. It continues to grow and improve its system with projects such as the Central Subway and Van Ness Bus Rapid Transit. During this centennial year, we reflect back on Muni's colorful history and look ahead to the future of our transit system. Driven not by wires or steel cable, but by the indomitable spirit of the people of San Francisco.
performance and talent show. Public recreation has every bit of the talent, every bit of the heart and soul of anything less intelligent families are paying ten times for. You are awesome! Well, thank you and welcome to California. Um, it's a great place to come and talk about solar energy because we're in the forefront of certainly the rest of the states, probably, in fact, certainly in the Western Hemisphere, uh, California is in the lead. And that's important. Uh, but being in the lead doesn't mean we've arrived at the goal. We've got a long way to go, and I hope that uh, the work you do here, the conversations, the relationships that are formed, can help advance uh, the cause of solar energy and renewable energy more generally. Uh, back when I was governor the first time, uh, that was a long time ago. Some of you folks weren't even born then. Um, not too many. I see a few gray hairs here who are hanging around. Uh, that was a long time ago, um, 38 years ago, as a matter of fact. Very few people get to be governor 38 years after they first started. With a 28-year hiatus. Uh, <clears throat> so I guess I had to expiate my many political sins, and I spent some time in the wilderness. Uh, but I am back, and I can reflect uh, on how politics works, how it worked then, uh, what's happened in the meantime, the challenges we now face. Uh, I promoted the solar energy uh, back in 1975 when I signed a law that granted a 55% tax credit to the installation uh, of solar. At that time, it was mostly uh, solar hot water. Uh, but 55% uh, was a credit, not a deduction. So you took it right off your state income tax, uh, probably the biggest incentive that has ever been provided. But over the years, uh, times change. Uh, but still, California at that time uh, was leading the way in solar and building efficiency. And then uh, very shortly after uh, 1982, um, promulgated uh, appliance efficiency standards. So uh, we did get uh, the sense 
of uh, renewable energy, efficiency, elegance in the way we handle resources. Uh, today, of course, we know a lot more. Uh, we know about climate change. Uh, we now have a population several billion more. Uh, we know uh, if the uh, demographers are right that the world will add another two billion people. Uh, two billion people, we now have a billion cars. When I was governor the last time, there were a couple hundred million cars. In fact, cars are reproducing faster than people. <laughs> and as long as they're using oil, we got a problem. That's why in California we have a goal to get a million uh, electric, electric, electric vehicles by 2025. So that, uh, uh, we've, uh, just within the last two months, uh, we actually recorded uh, over 2,000 megawatts of solar energy being put into the grid, which is more than uh, San Onofre provided. Of course, the sun only works for six hours or so, and nuclear works for, you know, four times as long. However, it leaves a little bit of a tail afterwards that has to be dealt with. Uh, so, but it, it's, it's an important milestone. And California does have the goal of 33% renewable energy. Uh, we have the goal of a million solar rooftops. We already have over 130,000 installations on, uh, on homes and small businesses. Uh, so we're looking at utility, scale, uh, insulation of solar. We're looking at individual homes and, and businesses. So wherever we can, uh, we are encouraging it. We're number one in the country. We're going to keep on going. It's, it's very critical. Now, I know uh, from the idea uh, to the execution, uh, to the secure realization uh, takes a long time. And we have to have patience. We have to have staying power. Uh, so that, that's the dilemma. Uh, when we look at most of the countries, uh, Germany is certainly an exception, uh, but most are not stepping up to the plate. There is a complete uh, disproportion between the knowledge and the magnitude, uh, the knowledge about and the magnitude of climate change and what it's going to do uh, to, uh, to, the way, to our way of life and our response. The response is feeble compared to the challenge. And, and we got to wake up to that fact. <laughs> the challenge, one of the challenges is uh, climate change is not news because it's too slow. News is fast. It's what didn't happen yesterday. And climate change has been happening um, gradually over time. And there's a lot of other stuff that's going on that uh, gets people all excited. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get excited about a lot of trivial things. Why not? Um, it can distract you from other trivial things uh, that may be more irritating. Uh, but still, uh, we have to think of, of what's important and what our responsibility as human beings are. It's, you know, it's not just fun and toys and entertainment and shopping. Uh, there's some serious stuff that uh, men and women uh, in this world have to deal with. And uh, those things, uh, there are a lot of them, you know, producing enough food, uh, creating a safe environment, 
good schools, medicine, but energy is certainly one of the pillars of modern civilization. And there's a lot of oil in the ground, more than, you know, if we wait for peak oil to save us, we're done. Because we got plenty of oil. I remember somebody telling me once, a Stanford professor, our problem is not too little too late when it comes to oil, but it's too much too soon. In other words, there's plenty there. So that's the problem. You've got something easy, coal. Well, we only have 40% now, but that's quite a lot. Coal burning, pretty simple stuff. And if you can't burn it in America, you just put it on a train, ship it over to China or India. Um, so we got market forces. And against that, we have to marshal intelligence and collaboration and uh, political response. Because uh, this thing, stuff is serious. And the fact that people aren't worried about it and don't talk about it doesn't mean it isn't serious. And that's the insidious character of this, uh, of this challenge, that uh, some people know about it. 90, 90 97% of the scientists uh, that who deal with in climate science are all agreed. But then when it comes to doing something, it, it takes leadership. And not just political leadership, but business leadership, church leadership, academic leadership. And that's, uh, that's the context, uh, I believe, in which uh, you come together. You're focusing on solar energy. That's a big piece. There's plenty of sun out there to take care of our energy. Uh, it's going to take time. It's going to take uh, technology. It's going to take scientific breakthroughs, research and development. And it's going to take storage. And it's going to take uh, various incentives. Just in California, you have some cities that charge 1800 bucks for a permit for somebody to put solar on the roof. Well, that's absurd. So we'll fight against that because there's soft costs, and we can bring those down. So from, from the small incremental step to, to the long march in getting it done, uh, th those are all the elements that you have to deal with. And um, uh, there's some, uh, you know, pauses. Sometimes things plateau. Uh, I know some of the utilities feel they have enough for 33 and a, and a third percent, which is our state goal. Uh, well, then you have to find other states. We've got, to, we've got to get other people putting out a 33% renewable standard. We've got to get, uh, and we do, we have a, a law in California encouraging storage because we can't just rely on, the, uh, on sunlight. We've got to bottle the sunlight. You've probably heard about that before, bottling sunlight. Well, that's a metaphor uh, for storage. But we can get it done. And, you know, in a time of war, when the invading army comes, people rise to the occasion. But when the invasion is more subtle and more gradual, and then what? Then it takes clarity, it takes courage, and it takes will. A lot of political will, a lot of uh, personal will. And that's what I would ur urge upon all of you. You've got your businesses or your academic work. Uh, all of it has to flow in to this transformation. Because climate change is happening. It's affecting the food supply. We have uh, the number of people going up, the number of oil-fed cars going up, uh, but we have food production uh, now lagging behind. And so we're going to have to slow climate change uh, while we take care of all these other economic challenges. And it's very easy to say, well, we can't turn off coal. Uh, we can't go to solar. It's too expensive. Well, you wait 10 years, 
you wait 15 years, it's going to be a lot more expensive. It's a lot more. So how do we take the future and bring it forward so that we can act on the basis of what we certainly expect? And when I say we, it's not we all the people. It's we a relatively small subset, people in this room, people uh, throughout the country, but in rather limited numbers. And so you not only have to do what you're doing, but you've got to find a way to market uh, the very idea of solar energy, the very idea that we have all the energy we need, we have to develop the technology to utilize it without, at the same time, uh, filling up uh, our atmosphere with so many, some methane and, and CO2 and uh, nitrogen oxide and all the other uh, emissions and pollutants that are going to reshape uh, what life on Earth is. When you hit 400 parts per million, as we did, as reported by the observatory, uh, the monitoring stations over in Hawaii, it hasn't been like that for three or four million years. And uh, when it was like that three or four million years, the sea was a lot higher. The ice at the poles was a lot less. So we got a lot of evidence. We got to find now the step-by-step -step sequential movement toward the goal. And the goal is an energy system totally compatible with the rules of nature. Humanity's, humanity's got to get on the side of nature. Now, a lot of people like to fight nature, but we are nature, so when we fight nature, we're fighting ourselves. We're fighting our own life support system. Uh, that's, that's really the challenge here. So it's business, it's a livelihood, but it's also a calling uh, to wake people up uh, to uh, make the kind of uh, progressive steps that are crucial uh, to make sure that we keep going. So we have 130,000 solar installations. We're going to get several hundred thousand more, and as governor of California, I guarantee we're going to get there because I'm going to move aside all the obstacles. Whoever and whatever they are, get out of the way. The sun is shining brightly in the state of California. All right. I, the only thing I want to say is when you introduced me, I, I, did, I could hear your German accent. And I just want to say I'm going to Germany next week because I still have a few distant relatives from my great-grandfather, August Schuckman, who uh, came to California in 1852 uh, and has sired now hundreds of, of little Schuckmans, some, some known as Brown. Um, and uh, so I'm going to reconnect with my inner Prussian <laughs> because we're going to need an indomitable will to overcome all the inertia, the blindness, and the silliness that stands in the way from our obvious destiny and future, which is a renewable, sustainable, solar America and solar world. Thank you very much.
I just want to say I am humbled to have been able to introduce Governor Brown. I am very, very happy to have you here. You have here a room and a conference, 20,000 people visiting who are all on the same line. Thank you so much okay. again. Thank you. Thank you. So please don't leave the room. Uh, the governor, of course, has a tight schedule and has to leave us, but uh, I am very, very encouraged. I think we could not have opened InterSolar in any better way than with this really stimulating works, works from somebody who has really shown in all his life and in all his professional achievements that this is the right direction. So I'm very happy to introduce uh, as our next speaker our distinguished mayor from this wonderful city of uh, San Francisco in which the California sun shines. I don't have to introduce Mayor Lee to you, but I just want to mention that I found in your, uh, in your CV that you are as well a graduate from UC Berkeley from Bolt Hall from 1978. Welcome. We have a lineup of Berkeley graduates. Well, um, thank you for that introduction, Dr. Weber. And if there's any doubt in your mind as to how Governor Brown figured out the budget, you just heard it. That's the power of his leadership. Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you for uh, your attending the 2013 Intersolar Conference here in San Francisco. And first, I want to give my personal thanks to the governor. Uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, by the way, all of the mayors from the top 10 cities in the state of California uh, met with him just a few weeks ago, and we had on our mind a uh, discussion with him about uh, our economy, our budgets, our economic challenges. Well, before we could sit down at his picnic table meeting room, and you know, if you've ever met with a governor, you, you should realize he doesn't have an ordinary meeting table in his office. He has a picnic table. And if you know picnic tables, they're very hard to sit on. And he explained uh, as he sat us down, I have a picnic table here because the hard seats make you don't want to sit here too long. And so be quick with what you have. And before we were even able to express uh, all of our concerns, he was at it. Just deja vu a minute ago, he said, I want to talk to you mayors about climate change. And immediately he thrust into handing out a report to each and every one of us and asked us, you read this. And I know all of you are committed, but I don't want BS. I want you to make sure you start paying attention to the science of climate change. And so he handed out a report. Uh, it was titled The Scientific Consensus for Maintaining Humanity's Life Support Systems in the 21st Century. And it's authored by worldwide scientists across the world evidencing uh, their confirmation that we're in big trouble and we need to do more for our environment. And this is, he led the conversation off with that. So we not only could not avoid it, we had to be very happy about listening to him about this in order for us to get our agenda done. Well, that's how committed our governor is. And you saw it right here, the passion. Uh, this is leadership. 
this is what we are all doing, and I am very happy to join him in making sure that that 33% gets done. Well, in fact, we're not satisfied here in San Francisco with 33%. We want 100% renewable energy in San Francisco. And we will get that done, I assure you. Climate change continues to be uh, one of the most important issues, and that is why this Intersolar Conference has its sixth meeting here in San Francisco. You know our passion for this. You know this is part of the DNA of how we run our local government. I'm honored to be welcoming all of you back here to our great city, and I want to, again, thank Dr. Weber and his wonderful staff and uh, the speakers uh, from the state and from uh, other uh, scientific fields will be here to address you in a moment. But there is no better place uh, for the solar industry than to really come together and meet right here in our great city. We are home to more than 19 megawatts of solar installation and over 211 clean tech companies that are driving innovation for the rest of the world right here in San Francisco. We are bold. And we're not afraid to be bold. That's why we're moving to 100% renewable energy in our city. We want to reduce our carbon. We want to green our buildings. And we want to become a mecca for clean transportation. This year, we're proud to be the number one spot on the Clean Edge U.S. Metro Clean Tech Index for all cities in the continental United States. Our city has launched effective and powerful solar programs, and we've set an ambitious clean energy goal of having 100% citywide electricity come from re renewable sources within the next 10 years. In the past decade, we've already begun this effort, and we've systematically been building out our renewable energy sources. Since 2004, our city has installed 13 municipal solar arrays, totaling about 7.4 megawatts of solar energy generating capacity. This includes five megawatts solar system in our Sunset Reservoir, which is our largest and one of the largest urban municipal solar arrays in the state of California when it was first installed. In fact, I think some of you may be visiting the Sunset Reservoir on your visit this time. Additionally, our solar sector incentive program, Gold Solar SF, has been working very hard in our city. In fact, in 2007, when it first started, there were only 795 non-municipal solar installations in our city that totaled about three megawatts. Today, that number is nearly quadrupled. We have now over 3,040 non-municipal solar installations that total 12 megawatts of power. And this is saving San Franciscans more than $4.5 million a year on their electrical bills and reducing 6,000 metric tons of CO2 in the atmosphere annually. Thank you. Every bit counts. And many of these installations are becoming the standard rather than the exception. And we're focused on installing them in all of our low-income homes and affordable housing developments as we build in the city. And as Jerry Brown said earlier, we are increasing our population, but we're going to build the right way. Our cities also streamlined the permitting process and reduced the permitting costs for San Francisco residents. Our residential solar permits are available on the counter, over the counter, and online. 
and we have one of the lowest fees in the state of California. And we're going to keep it that way. We're going to keep working with all of the Bay Area uh, jurisdictions to continue streamlining and standardizing the processes, not just for our city, but across the region, consistent with the U.S. Department of Energy's SunShot initiative. And we are working to even better our San Francisco energy map so that everybody else can use it. And we can spread this to now more than 30 cities across the world that are using similar uh, energy maps to map out uh, their solar installations. We paired this bold strategy and leadership with smart economic development strategies that drive the growth of our clean tech industries in San Francisco. In fact, March of last year, the clean tech group named San Francisco the clean tech capital of North America because we had made our aggressive push in the renewable energy, particularly in solar. Thank you. And we want other cities to win that title as well. We're not satisfied being the only city in North America that earns that title. We want other cities to earn that as well because that will up the competition and we like competition in this area. We also passed a business tax exclusion for clean tech firms in our city. We've taken advantage of our position as being in the global center for business and for innovation to become a hub for international clean tech firms. Our historic strength in our city has been uh, in finance. And so solar firms are moving here to San Francisco to be close to their financial partners and to major utilities and government agencies such as Pacific Gas and Electric, our San Francisco Public Utilities, our California Public Utilities uh, Commission, as well as the Environmental Protection Agencies. We are now home to more than 35 solar companies, and five of the top 10 solar module manufacturers in the world have their offices here in San Francisco. We're home to energy uh, major developers and installers, including Sunrun, uh, Sun Edison, Tioga Energy, Bass Electric, Luminalt, and Abengoa. So to the solar companies already here in our great city, thank you for investing in our great city. And to those who are not yet located in San Francisco, we welcome you with open arms. Please consider joining your great colleagues and being part of the world's most in innovative and dynamic solar clusters in the world. We're continuing to be a great city. We're very proud of our partnerships and our solar companies and our service providers. We're proud of their work. We're not stopping here with these milestones. We're going to heed the call of our governor. We're going to get to goals yet to be imagined. And I thank you for being here in our world-class city to kick off this Inner Solar 2013. Thank you for being here in San Francisco. City officials joined Outer Richmond residents on June 9th for the Cabrillo Playground groundbreaking ceremony. It was an exciting event for those neighbors ready for some long overdue improvements. There's a need and the neighbors of this great city, they, they, they solve it, they take care of it. The $4.5 million project is expected to open in spring 2013. 
For more on the Cabrillo Playground, including what changes will be made, visit sfrecpark.org. Everyone, well, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, being here. And uh, I, I just wanted to uh, acknowledge how a momentous occasion this is and want to thank uh, uh, all the members of the Board of Supervisors for uh, being here uh, to join me in this announcement along with the uh, California Pacific Medical uh, Center officials and, of course, our extraordinary uh, volunteer, Mr. Gerardo. Uh, I'm happy today to sign uh, this legislation uh, to approve the California Pacific Medical Center's uh, hospital rebuild project and development agreement uh, that the city, uh, through its Board of Supervisors, just passed uh, this last Tuesday. Uh, this historic agreement ensures that two brand-new seismically safe hospitals for our city are going to be built uh, while guaranteeing important uh, health care and other benefits that San Franciscans will enjoy for years to come. I want to thank everybody in this room and particularly all those that are standing behind me for getting us to this day uh, that we can sign this agreement. And yes, it's been long, it's been arduous, uh, but I believe that we all agree it was definitely worth the effort. Uh, together and through our consensus building approach, we made it possible to build two seismically safe hospitals, advance the state of medical care in our city, and put thousands of San Franciscos to work. Uh, I also want to take this moment and uh, mention my personal thanks on behalf of the city, if I will. And I know the board will join me uh, that uh, I want to thank CPMC for their deliberate participation with some 10 other Bay Area hospitals to respond in the highest professional fashion to the critical emergency needs that were had this past weekend. Uh, you were one of many hospitals that took care of very seriously injured passengers on the Asiatic flight, and I want to just personally thank you, and I will be uh, doing that and happily doing that in the weeks to come as we celebrate our heroes, uh, whether they were the emergency responders or where they were working in the hospitals and volunteers and the nurses and everyone in those hospitals. Uh, but I think it's very timely that since we're doing this, uh, to give a special shout out to CPMC as one of the uh, great Bay Area hospitals that responded effectively. That is why we have so many of uh, the passengers and the crews uh, that are surviving this uh, uh, big crash that could have been 10 times worse. Having said that, that's just an example of why we're doing this today. Uh, because uh, San Francisco will enjoy two brand new hospitals, 120 bed state of the art hospital at St. Luke's will be built, a brand new hospital of course at Cathedral Hill that will have anywhere from 274 to 304 beds depending upon the circumstances. But our residents in the Bay Area will receive guaranteed levels of charity care medical treatments at these hospitals, and of course, with all the other parts of this wonderful agreement, uh, we've got innovative improvements to our uh, neighborhood medical clinics, uh, much-needed affordable housing, transportation improvements, and pedestrian safety for all of our neighborhoods. The list will go on and on, and the agreements reflect all of that, 
but I am happy that we all got through to this day. And uh, again, I will repeat, uh, given the mass uh, casualties that occurred, uh, this is one of the reasons we want our hospitals in a seismically safe built environment. Uh, I will also say that uh, almost a year ago, uh, we were all at a different place. Uh, an impasse had cast some doubt as to our ability to move this project forward. And at this time, I would like to thank and acknowledge several individuals that have been instrumental in bringing us back to the agreement, back to the table, and building the consensus we needed to get this done. Three members of our Board of Supervisors spent an extraordinary amount of their personal time, as well as their city time, to get this done. Board President David Chu, Supervisor Mark Farrell, and Supervisor David Campos spent an extraordinary amount of hours. And I personally want to thank them for doing that, because I know that those early morning hour meetings that occurred, the weekend phone calls, uh, sometimes the phone calls were from Lou to get them back to the table after some doors were slammed. Uh, and we know that because I've been through that myself. Uh, yet, I would say that dedication and leadership persevered uh, through our supervisors and it made it happen. This could not have happened without a local businessman's participation as well. And of course, I'm speaking about Lou Gerardo. He agreed to serve as a mediator, gave a huge amount of his personal time to this effort, and while I know he didn't realize what this would take when he first volunteered after we asked him, uh, I also know that he worked through a lot of frustration to get this agreement happen. And it wasn't just the meetings that he had between CPMC officials, Sutter officials, and the Board of Supervisors. He took those extraordinary steps that all of us usually ask of each other. He worked with labor. He worked with uh, the associations of nurses and others to apprise them and keep them uh, updated about what was going on. He worked with community leaders to make sure they knew uh, that the things that they had negotiated, whether it was through their supervisors or uh, through the mayor's office or uh, through their direct contact with CPMC and Sutter, that they were uh, also, their needs were being honored. He worked with housing advocates in the community to make sure their needs were heard and that this uh, additional effort wasn't going to necessarily sacrifice a lot of things that they had felt were of utmost importance to them. So I just want to make sure we give a big shout out to Lou Gerardo as well uh, for his efforts in bringing everybody together. Last but not least, I want to give a big thanks to Mike Cohill and to Dr. Warren Browner uh, representing CPMC and Sutter for their being able to uh, take another look uh, when supervisors called and when we uh, got a mediator back together. I know it's hard when you think you have an agreement and then uh, doubts are cast and things have to be relooked at and they had to go back to uh, their hospital administrative uh, officials and their board to assure them that a deal could be had, and that's not easy in these uh, times. By the way, I want to remind everybody, during these last year and a half, two years, all of the questions around uh, the Federal Affordable Health Care Act were also trying to be understood by everyone. That takes great toll on people who are spending millions of dollars on a hospital 
and not knowing what the future needs might be and how Affordable Care Act would impact that, their past models uh, had to be challenged and reviewed so that they can take care of folks for the next 10 to 50 years. So I know and understand that there had to be a lot there. Going back to Lou, he's often said uh, that he's just a, a businessman, a baker, if you will. Uh, I think Lou got the right recipe on this one. <laughs> and I think the recipe was all the things I just said about what he had to do to get this done. And the recipe included some main ingredients from our Board of Supervisors to add to that. So I'm buying the bread. Uh, Lou, I just want to let you know that uh, uh, not only have we uh, appreciated your work, uh, but we all appreciate this wonderful approach that you did. And it was unique, uh, but it was something that was absolutely necessary to get everybody uh, out of their positions and into an agreed uh, upon posture. With that, uh, I'd like to bring uh, Board President David Chu to the podium because I know he spent incredible amount of time on this. And uh, again, thank you, uh, President Chu, and uh, thank you, Mark Farrell, and thank you, David Campos. David Chu. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. And for the record, my recollection was there was only one door slammed, and I can't remember exactly who did it. Um, this is a great day for the health of San Francisco. This is a great day for the future health of our city. Uh, I'm so delighted to be here. Um, and let me also say that uh, it was about a year ago that a couple of us at the board, including Supervisor Cohen, uh, we held a very different press conference uh, over on the board side. And uh, I am just amazed and so grateful that we have come as far as we have gotten to, to where we are today. Uh, it takes a village to build two hospitals. And I want to take just a brief moment to thank everyone who has been part of that village, starting first and foremost with the community, the leadership behind the elected leaders here, uh, who ensured that this is a deal that's not only good for health care, uh, but ensures that we are meeting our local hiring needs, our housing needs, our transportation needs, our neighborhood needs around the city. And of course, I want to thank uh, the family of labor, both from the trades as well as our health care workers and our nurses, who are very instrumental in making sure that we get to the right deal. Shout out, of course, to the entire Lee administration, uh, starting with Mayor Lee, but I want to just take a moment and single out Ken Rich, who I think really has birthed the baby that is represented here. <laughs> of course, uh, we have to thank CPMC. I want to uh, single out uh, Dr. Browner and Mike Cohill and just say that uh, we will be meeting you guys at Boudin's Bakery tomorrow at 7.30 to celebrate. Uh, A.M. <laughs> and P.M. Um, two days ago, we took a moment to thank uh, a true hero in our community, and everyone knows who I'm talking about, a man who, uh, whose own organization starts with the letter B. I refer to him as our Batman because we will put up a bat signal in the sky the next time there's a major impasse here in San Francisco. Lou Gerardo, thank you. And... Um, I, of course, in addition to thanking my colleagues and their support, because really every single one of our colleagues lended a perspective uh, and helped to make this deal better. So thank you to Katie Tang and Scott Weiner who are here and Eric Marr. Uh, but of course, uh, the three amigos, uh, as David Campos liked to refer to us, uh, David and Mark, uh, we may come from slightly different places, but each of us, I think, uh, like everyone here in this room, we wanted to make sure that a 21st century healthcare system 
is created here in the city, uh, and this balances out what we need to make San Francisco great. So with that, uh, it's my honor to uh, introduce the second of the three amigos, uh, Supervisor Mark Farrell. Uh, thank you for being here. Thanks, David. It's, uh, it's really great to be here today. We are so fortunate as we come before you signing legislation to build two brand new hospitals here in the city of San Francisco to upgrade two other hospitals in our city, and that being the CPMC campuses at Davies in Supervisor Wieners District, as well as the Pacific Campus here in District 2, uh, where I represent. And I do want to thank uh, CPMC for their incredible leadership and their involvement for sticking with it. Uh, Dr. Browner and Mike Cohill, thank you so much. Again, to Mayor Lee and his team in particular, Ken Rich, enough cannot be said about Ken's leadership and really quarterbacking this project throughout the process. Um, and to all of the leadership, to President Chu, Supervisor Campos, um, and all the board members that helped during this process. Uh, it was truly a team effort. And I also want to take a moment to thank the members in District 2 where two of the existing CPMC hospitals are being housed right now in the California campus and the Pacific campus. And across the street will be, from District 2, will be the new Cathedral campus. And to all the neighborhood groups in District 2 who came together to work with CPMC, to work with my office, to work with the mayor's team, to make sure that all the neighborhood needs were met, uh, to make sure that as we build these hospitals, we build them in a way that makes sense for our neighborhoods but in particular in a way that we can deliver that health care into the next century for San Francisco and really make sure that we continue to be at the forefront of health care delivery, not only here in our city, but across the country. We're extremely lucky as a city. Again, I say we are the envy of many other cities throughout our state and our country, and now we can add two brand new hospitals to that list. So very proud to be here today. Uh, and similarly, I want to introduce one of my colleagues uh, that played such an integral role in this process, where one of the brand new hospitals is going to be built square in his district. He was the biggest advocate for it. He needs to be congratulated for all of his work, and that's Supervisor David Campos. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Farrell. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor, uh, to you and your amazing staff, and of course to Ken Ridge, who has done an incredible job uh, navigating this very complicated process. I don't want to repeat some of the things that have been said, but I do need to, to thank uh, the people who have made this possible, uh, beginning with a coalition that has included a, a very broad and diverse group of folks from the community, from labor. Uh, they have truly been the backbone of, of this effort, and uh, they are the ones who I think ultimately deserve uh, the, the largest credit for this victory. Uh, I also want to thank CPMC and Sutter. Uh, you know, it's been uh, a difficult process, and I'm, I'm very uh, appreciative to Dr. Browner, to my Cohill, that, that you kept an open mind and that you were willing to sit at the table uh, with the three amigos and Lou Gerardo in the mayor's office. Uh, it was not an easy thing to do. Uh, let me say that for me, this is a very personal thing because one of the things that will happen because of this deal is that we will have a new, uh, larger, viable, world-class St. Luke's Hospital. It's a very personal thing. Uh, I, I talked about how, you know, my mom was rushed to the ER at St. Luke's. And so uh, I know that this means a lot, the same for so many different families. I also want to thank my colleagues on the Board of Supervisors, and I want to thank Supervisor Wiener, uh, Supervisor Tang, Supervisor Mar for being here, and the rest of the supervisors, because they, they put a lot of trust in us and, and in this process, and uh, I know that they have their own issues and their own constituents, 
And so it made a great deal, meant a great deal to me uh, that you would put that kind of trust in us. And so it is greatly appreciated. And now it is my honor to introduce someone who, uh, you know, one of the, the, the most uh, rewarding things about this experience is that I had the opportunity to get to know one of the most remarkable people that I've had the opportunity to, to, to meet in government. And, you know, there's something about bakers. My grandmother was a baker, and, and she's one of the most amazing people that I have ever met. And Lou Gerardo, uh, I have yet to meet a finer uh, individual, a finer public servant, someone who not only has the, the skills to mediate something like this, but who, who is brilliant, uh, who has a great deal of integrity, and above all, who has a big heart, uh, a real hero of mine, Lou Gerardo. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Um, I simply want to say that it was a privilege and an honor to have been asked and to have been able to serve in this capacity. I want to thank Warren Browner and Mike Cohill for turning this into a transparent process and, and allowing all of us to be educated. They're both very good professors. I want to thank Ken Rich for the great job he did for the mayor's office. Um, Ken <laughs> kept us all alive and moving throughout the process and, and was the man who, who uh, was better at detail than the rest of us. Um, the three supervisors, uh, I've said before and I'll say again, um, I've read about in the newspaper. I hadn't known them very well. Um, I've not been involved in politics much in the last few years and um, uh, came in somewhat skeptical about who they were and what they were and what they could achieve. But I would like to say that San Francisco is very fortunate to have the 11 members of the Board of Supervisors that we have. Uh, they're all wonderful people. And I came away knowing that they believed in common good and that they were able to drop their political narcissism, if they have such a thing, that they depoliticized, and they put their ambitions aside to make this work. And at the same time, I think that the coalition of coalitions needs a big thank you because they were a great educator as well. They kept us all informed as to what their issues were, uh, but they weren't just giving us opinion, they were giving us fact. So we learned a lot from them as well. So. Here's to San Francisco. We're lucky we've got such a great government. We've got a wonderful mayor, a great board of supervisors, and now we're going to have two wonderful hospitals uh, to take care of, of everyone. So thank you all very much for the opportunity. Well, I'd better sign these before the political narcissism sets in. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, come on, come on, come on, Lou. Come on, Lou. And uh, Lou, thank you. Thank, thank you very thank you. much. Thank you. Right. Uh, <laughs> 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 Supervisor Farrell, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Browner, thank you. Michael thank you very much. And this is a special one. For somebody who's been working pretty hard in administration, Ken Rich.
Fund, uh, also known as the Haas Senior Fund, uh, Pam David, the Wallace Alexander Gabodi Foundation, Stacy Ma and Thomas Layton, and grant makers concerned with immigrants and refugees represented today by Felicia Bartow, Deputy Director. Um, also present today are Commissioner Celine Canali, Vice Chair of the San Francisco Immigrant Rights Commission, City Librarian Luis Herrera, uh, the San Francisco Public Library will be hosting the website for this initiative, and Clementine uh, Nakolov of the African Advocacy Network. Um, so let me provide, first of all, just a little bit of background on the initiative. In 2008, while serving as city administrator, Mayor Ed Lee created the Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs, one of the first such offices in the nation. The intention was to better communicate with and engage our city residents while providing opportunities for meaningful part participation and particularly for underserved and vulnerable communities. In 2009, the city had the pleasure of collaborating with business community and philanthropic partners for the 2010 decennial census count. We learned a lot about applying relevant street-wise, street-smart approaches to outreach and supporting community stewardship. This successful outreach effort and ongoing relationship evolved into a new model of engagement and collaboration. Last year, under the leadership of Mayor Ed Lee and Dr. Sandra Hernandez of the San Francisco Foundation, planning began on a citywide citizenship initiative. A total of five philanthropic foundations, a national grantmakers organization, and trusted community partners are working together with the city on this effort. We will be starting the pilot phase of the initiative after today's announcement. We hope to include more partners as the initiative progresses and into full implementation over the next three years. Uh, so Mayor Lee will now announce the initiative, and as a longtime civil rights champion and leader, Mayor Lee has infused San Francisco city government with a new sense of inclusive collaborative leadership effectiveness and boundless energy, creative uh, innovation, and energy. So, Mayor Lee. Well, thank you, Adrian. Uh, yeah, I don't know about boundless energy, <laughs> but I do. Uh, I, I am inspired uh, by our immigrant community. They, uh, we've done so much uh, that uh, I think the city is. Uh, its DNA is really about our diversity. And let me uh, thank Adrienne. She's been a wonderful leader at the uh, Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant, Immigrant Affairs, uh, leading an effort not just with the Immigrant Rights Commission, but uh, a good, strong relationship with our community-based organizations that do all of the great on-the-ground work with our immigrant families, people who are coming here as refugees, uh, adjusting people who have come here, uh, uh, as permanent residents, people have come here seeking uh, their future, their hopes for themselves and their families. Also people who uh, often came here by different ways and stayed and maybe overstayed uh, their status or were escaping from war-torn or impoverished countries and found refuge to come here to San Francisco. We are indeed and still are and will continue to be a sanctuary city for many, many visitors and people who want to be here. Uh, having said that, uh, I am glad to be here this morning with uh, Adrian, Dr. Hernandez, and also, again, teaming up uh, with Board President and Supervisor David Chu, 
who I got a chance to work with uh, very early as we prepared uh, back in 2010 with all the community groups and with the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and then uh, I was the city administrator tasked by the mayor and the board uh, with this big challenge of how do we go about uh, the census, knowing that every census in past history and those brief uh, partial census efforts that go on in between the 10 years always undercounted our folks uh, and people who've been here, all the groups that I just described and the folks that we have tried to serve and knew that they were living sometimes in the shadows, sometimes without a lot of help and support. How do we count them in uh, as residents of this city? And so we began on a very strong outreach program that depended upon service providers, to be quite candid. Uh, not just government agencies, but providers that had sacrificed much of their time uh, in the nonprofit world, uh, surviving on very, uh, uh, very much on foundational grants, uh, foundational leaders who oftentimes were the only ones that heard the voices that we need help to really identify these folks. Because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have people coming out and telling us what diseases were causing them problems, what was spreading, what were the fears in our immigrant communities that were preventing them from participating, uh, from not getting licenses, uh, not accessing themselves to job opportunities, uh, being uh, perhaps uh, caught up in underground economy. And you know what that leads to oftentimes is many problems that also may have challenges in our criminal justice system as well as our economics. Uh, we wanted all of that to change. We've, uh, for many years as kids of immigrants, uh, we've always felt it was our duty to take up what maybe our parents and our, our friends were not able to out of fear or out of the lack of government action or accountability or even a safety net for people to be able to speak freely in. Taking all of that immigrant life uh, uh, lessons and now placing them in effective, culturally competent programs was our task. And so back in 2010, we tried to do that. And I think we did very well in the census count by bringing forth so many groups to be counted and not to be afraid uh, and not to be experiencing consequences. But the census was only the beginning. We knew that. And in our follow-up conversations with Dr. Hernandez, who helped lead uh, a lot of the uh, community-based efforts, uh, as well as conversations with uh, foundations and grants with people like Annie Chung and others who are community leaders uh, with different ethnicities. And I mean all ethnicities, not just uh, ones that are dominant uh, immigrants in San Francisco, like uh, Asians and Latinos, but our African community, our Eastern Europe community, our Middle Eastern uh, communities are all engaged in this effort. And our goal was always beyond just being counted. How do you participate fully in American society? How do you get to a David Chu as the supervisor or Ed Lee as the mayor and register your heartfelt uh, viewpoints on how your park should look like? What kind of education level your school should be in? Uh, what kind of community safety plans would make you and your family feel safe? What kind of level of health care, which is a big, big challenge for us these days, that you need in order to keep healthy? 
all of these kinds of issues, including input in the government, we've always wanted to improve. Well, today there is over 100,000 permanent residents in San Francisco who are not fully engaged yet in everything that they could be doing in registering their vo voice. And so we want to announce today a new initiative. It's the San Francisco Pathways to Citizenship Initiative. Its job, its focus, is to work with all the community-based organizations in a public-private way, work with the foundations who have historically uh, uh, supported these efforts to bring voice and, and communication uh, to hidden communities and uh, unannounced uh, communities, and to bring them to a path of citizenship and to talk in culturally competent ways what the benefits of full citizen participation are, and there are many. Uh, if you are becoming a citizen or if you become a citizen, uh, you're going to have a lot more fuller rights. For one thing, you get to vote in San Francisco. You get to vote in America, and that voting right is so precious. And we saw just uh, a month ago, or less than a month ago, how uh, we revisited how valuable that voting rights is and all the sacrifices that uh, heroes of this country had to protect that right for everybody. We want everybody to enjoy that because that gets you a voice in all the things that we initially talked about. Uh, we want citizens to have a proper uh, rich orientation and training classes that will, uh, conduct, that will be conducted through this initiative with nonpartisan uh, voting, uh, the rights to vote, the right to be educated around every ballot measure uh, that we have, whether it costs you more money or it doesn't cost you anything, uh, or uh, how do we improve muni, uh, whether it costs you more or it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, how do we do all of that in a much more involved way? Education, outreach, more engaging uh, new citizens to uh, mentor and help other eligible immigrants navigate the citizenship application process. We think this is our next both challenge but opportunity just beyond uh, the work that we did, which was groundwork to get people counted. And I said earlier, uh, our diversity is not just to be tolerated. It has to be celebrated in every way. And full participation is the goal. Uh, I want to thank wonderful, historic, and uh, new funding partners that uh, through their leadership and generosity in this initiative. Uh, certainly Sandra Hernandez and the San Francisco Foundation have been longtime partners. She's been so helpful in many other things, and uh, as many of you know, she's helping me on Hope SF provide uh, housing opportunities for uh, some of our worst uh, dilapidated housing. Now she's also, again, stepped up uh, with additional partners. And I want to just signal to you some of these historic partners that are working with us. The Gerbodi Foundation, the Haas uh, Junior and Senior uh, Foundations, as well as the Asian Pacific Fund, amongst many uh, other foundations that are assisting us. This is a $1.2 million initiative over the next three years, uh, with the city providing about half of the uh, funding and the foundations stepping up with the other half. But the real work is going to be done at the community level. Uh, the community organizations that are going to be working with us are numerous, and they reflect all the different ethnicities that I just mentioned. But I wanted to mention a few to give them some special thank you because they're stepping uh, beyond uh, what they've traditionally done and going into the mode of going beyond just the citizenship count 
and now into services and into this new orientation uh, and uh, training. And that is Self-Help for the Elderly will be one of our lead agencies. Thank you, Annie, again, for, for leading that effort. You've been a wonderful uh, collaborator with all of us. Uh, Asian Law Caucus, the Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach, the Catholic Charities, uh, CYO, the International Institute of the Bay Area, Jewish Family and Children's Services, La Raza Community Resource Center, as well as the African Advocacy Network, the Arab Resource Organizing Center, uh, Mayab, which is the Asocion Mayab, the Southeast Asian Community uh, Center, New America Media, and of course our San Francisco Immigrant Rights Commission. Uh, you know, I've often uh, said in many speeches that our immigrant uh, population is important. Well, over a third of our population are immigrants, and we acknowledge that. But I don't just want to say it as an announcement. Everybody knows that. What we want is full participation. We want people to not be afraid or not be meeting as many barriers as they are today from activating themselves in full participation. And I do want to have uh, people of all languages and all heritages telling us how they want our parks to be managed, how they want community safety, how they want transportation to be had, all these things everybody else gets to do, and they weigh in pretty heavily. But I want full participation of that. And until we get so, we'll always feel we're not representing everybody in the city. And so this effort is to get to the additional 100,000 permanent residents to encourage them to, uh, to get to the citizenship, enjoy all those benefits. Those benefits are numerous. You're going to be able to situate yourself in better jobs. You're going to get uh, qualified for training programs that are only offered uh, sometimes to citizenships. You're going to always, obviously, we want to improve your language capabilities so that you're able to navigate these employment training programs and all the other engaging programs that we have. San Francisco is the innovation capital of the world. And in that way, all of the different ethnicities that arrive in San Francisco of all different backgrounds need to be part of this innovation. Because innovation is not about just one particular group of people. It's about everybody participating. And you should hear some of the tech kids that are in the city who want to hear from the Chinese American community, the Southeast Asian American community, the African immigrant community, the Latino immigrant community, the Southeast Asian community, all of them. They want to hear how they can innovate a technology with everyone else and how they can improve lives. Technology is there for our use. And one of the big reasons we support it, it's got to improve our lives for everybody. Well, you cannot improve one's life if you're not communicating with people that speak Spanish only, that uh, are in the shadows. Uh, this is why we're making this announcement. We're also making a timely announcement, and Adrian is very strategic on this, because we are having a national conversation about immigration. We have to pass comprehensive immigration reform in this country. Uh, Senate has done part of it. We have, to get, we have to get this agenda to the rest of Congress, to the House of Representatives, a big, big challenge. The President, our Senators, our Leader Pelosi, Senator Feinstein, they're all engaged in it. We have to push very hard. 
And I think our voices are going to be that much stronger if we add an additional 100,000 people on our way to citizenship because that's the full circle. And that's why we need immigration reform. We also need to make sure we bring uh, some path of citizenship to all those that are living in the shadows as we have been a sanctuary city. We need everybody to be full participants, and that's what we're doing today. So again, I want to thank uh, Sandra. I want to thank Annie. I want to thank all the community groups that are standing behind us, people that we'll work with to help us be the successful city that we always feel we are, but we want to get more out of our citizens than just living and enjoying life here. We have to participate in the fullest way, and this is what's going to make our city even more successful. Thank you very much for participating here today. Thank you, Mayor Lee. You know, we would not get all these things done in San Francisco without the leadership and support of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And Supervisor David Chu is a former criminal prosecutor, civil rights and immigration attorney, technology entrepreneur, Senate judiciary aide, and Democratic counsel. He's done a lot of things in his life. Um, he's also a talented and highly effective leader of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, where he has served as president since 2009. President Chu. Thank you and good morning, everyone. First of all, I want to join the mayor in thanking all the folks behind me uh, who represent the funding community that has so wonderfully stepped up. Thank you, Dr. Sandra Hernandez and your colleagues. I, of course, want to thank all the amazing nonprofit social service providers and immigrant rights organizations that have been part of the fabric of why I'm so proud of San Francisco as a city that welcomes and protects our immigrant communities. And I also want to take a moment and thank all of you. You're taking pictures of us because I think behind us represents the diversity of our city, but we are looking at you. And if you actually looked among yourselves, this room reflects the diversity of the world. San Francisco, we were built by immigrants. The present of our city is successful because of the vitality of our immigrant community, and we know the future of San Francisco rests with the future of our immigration and immigrant community. So I want to thank you for being part of this. Uh, as Adrian mentioned, uh, in the late 1990s, the first time I ever stepped foot into City Hall was when I was working as an immigrant rights attorney, working on the fact, as many of you know, uh, that our immigrants, our non-citizens, have incredible challenges in becoming citizens. Not only do they have to wade through immigration codes that are many inches thick, they often have to spend a ton of money to hire attorneys as well as to pay for immigration fees. Not only does our federal government have enormous backlogs when it comes to immigration applications, uh, but it's a very daunting process. And this is why, as the mayor said, it is so important that we get immigration reform done. In the mid-1990s, I actually worked for the U.S. Senate the last time they passed a so-called immigration reform bill. That, immigrant, that immigration bill was a punitive bill. It essentially sent the message to the world that America was not open to immigrants. We need a different message, and this is a message that we need to get out today from San Francisco. Fast forward to 2010. I was proud at that time uh, to ask Mayor Gavin Newsom to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to make sure that we counted all members of our San Francisco community. And who did we ask to step up to make sure that that money was well spent? It was our then city administrator, now Mayor Ed Lee. It was Adrian Pond. It was many of the folks behind us who made sure that we were counting everyone who was a resident regardless of their citizenship. 
Today we're talking about taking that next step. It's such a wonderful moment to be part of, I think, the celebration of who we are as a city, to be able to say, now that we have gotten everyone here, uh, we need to make sure that we get everyone through the immigration process so that they don't have to ever fear that they're not part of our body fabric, our city fabric, who we are as Americans. And so I'm delighted to be part of this conversation, and I'm delighted to represent a board of supervisors that has stood repeatedly uh, for the idea that regardless of your citizenship, you deserve a spot in San Francisco. I serve on a board where over half of us are the sons and daughters, the grandsons and granddaughters of immigrants. We have immigrants on our board of supervisors. And the last thing I'll just mention is Regardless of how long your family has been here, at some point in your lineage, you came to this country, you came to the state, you came to San Francisco, and part of what we're saying today is we all deserve to be here, we deserve to make San Francisco and America great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Supervisor. Many of you may not know that 30, over 35% of San Francisco's small businesses are owned by and operated by immigrants today. Our next speaker is a real role model for many of us. As CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, Dr. Sandra Hernandez is an advocate, a physician, a philanthropic leader, a role model, and definitely a groundbreaker. She's the former director of the San Francisco Department of Public Health and a nationally renowned expert on healthcare and nonprofit sustainability. Dr. Hernandez. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Adrian. Uh, I want to appreciate you, Mayor Lee. Supervisor Chu, and really all of our philanthropic partners that are launching this extraordinary pathway to citizenship in San Francisco. The San Francisco Foundation for over 60 years has held very central to its core mission the notion that we need to engage every citizen, every resident in order to make our democracy better. And all of the philanthropic organizations that are part of this pathway initiative likewise believe that our democracy is better when everybody is included in it. The San Francisco Foundation is proud to be a leader and investor in this necessary work bringing together the deep commitment of all of our immigrant communities, their partners, to assure economic mobility, education, health care access, and of course that they are civically engaged. As the mayor and supervisor Chu said, we are a nation and a city of immigrants. We are a testament to America's spirit of risk and its spirit of innovation. In the heart of every, every immigrant is a risk taker a bold and courageous person who's risked everything to make a better lives, life for themselves, but also to make a better life for all of their neighbors and communities in which they live. Like Mayor Lee and the supervisor, I'm a proud daughter of American immigrants. They came to this country with odds stacked against them to build a better future for my siblings and my cousins. My father served in the Army but more important to him was that he served at every polling station in every election from the time he was legally able to do so. And at breakfast before every election was a very, very, very engaged, vivid, enlightened conversation about how my mother should vote, even though she didn't always agree with him, uh, and that really it was our responsibility to comment on the things that Mayor Lee referenced. What kind of health care should we have? 
what should be the caliber of our schools, what kind of open space should we have, how should we use land. These are all very critical parts of our democracy and our voice. And I'm very, very proud on behalf of the San Francisco Foundation to partner with the city, Adrian and her staff, our philanthropic partners, but most of all, to partner with the nonprofit organizations who on the ground will be working to find ways to reach the 100,000 folks living in this city today who have not yet found their pathway to citizenship. We believe it's a fundamental part of our city life to do so, and the San Francisco Foundation is extremely proud to have partnered with this group to bring it together. We look forward to three years of learning and to reaching as many of these folks as we can, to have them become citizens, and to come to health commission meetings and tell the director of health and all of our other commissioners what it is they would like to see their city be. Thank you very much on behalf of the San Francisco Foundation. Thank you, Dr. Hernandez. A vital aspect of the San Francisco Pathways to Citizenship Initiative is civic engagement. This component is not just another hurdle potential uh, citizens must pass to complete a naturalization exam, but an opportunity to instill lifelong active engagement among our new naturalized citizens and to encourage meaningful participation uh, to contribute to San Francisco's overall success and prosperity. Seven local community-based organizations with decades of expertise were selected for the pilot year of this initiative. But the Hi, I'm Lawrence Cornfield with Building San Francisco. We're doing a special series called Stay Safe here at the Spur Urban Center on Mission Street in San Francisco. And today we are going to talk about what shelter in place or safe enough to stay in your home means. We're here at the Spur Urban Center on Mission Street in San Francisco, and we're joined by Sarah Karlinski, the Deputy Director of Spur, who is one of the uh, one of the persons who pushed along this whole shelter-in-place and safe enough to stay concept. And we want to talk today about what safe enough to stay means and why it's important in San Francisco. As you know, the Bay Area has a 63% chance of having a major earthquake at some point in the next 30 years. And that's, that's very serious, and that's going to impact a lot of people, and um, particularly people in San Francisco, because we live on a, on a major fault. So what does this mean for us? Well, um, part of what it means is that potentially 25% of San Francisco's building stock will be uninhabitable after an earthquake if we don't do anything about it. And that means that people won't be able to stay in their homes after an earthquake. They, um, they may have to go to shelters. They may end up leaving the city entirely, and we don't want that to happen. We want to be able to keep our people in San Francisco. So we want to both have a building stock that allows people to stay in their homes and we want to encourage people when they possibly can to stay and not to relocate to other locations or That's shelters. Right. 
That's right. And so uh, what that means is that the housing needs to be safe enough so people can stay. And um, we've been really focused on trying to define what that means. And, and you, as a former building official, know better than anybody that the current building code basically says, hey, if an earthquake happens, your building won't kill you. But it doesn't necessarily say, hey, if an earthquake happens, you can stay in your home. And so we set out to try to define what that what that might mean, um, and as you know, because you built this uh, this great little house that we're in right now, this house shows you what uh, what it might be like to live in a home that's safe enough to stay. It's not going to be perfect. There are going to be some cracks in the walls. Uh, you might not even have gas and electricity for a while, but you can basically essentially camp out within your unit. Now, uh, what's it going to take for our housing stock to, to get up to this standard? That's something that you and I spent a lot of time talking about. And one of the building types that we talked about most of all um, are what's called the soft story buildings. And um, those are buildings where the, the ground floor is very, very vulnerable, either because there are a lot of openings for garages or there are openings for windows. And during an earthquake, those are the buildings that we saw in the marina that just went, right. they went right over. And they, those are not going to be vulnerable buildings. very vulnerable. And there are a lot of apartment buildings in San Francisco that are like that. So one of our key recommendations is, hey, you know what? It's time to retrofit those buildings and make them strong enough so that people can stay in them after the earthquake. So what do you think it takes to get people to take this all seriously and retrofit? Do they just need information? Do they need incentives? Do they need mandates? What, what, what makes people do something? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it definitely starts first with information. I think that a lot of people think that new buildings are earthquake-proof, for example. They don't, they don't really understand what kind of performance their building will have. And so part of what we want to see is a, a really transparent way of letting people know, hey, is my building going to be safe enough to, um, for me to stay in it after an earthquake? Is my building so dangerous that I, could, I should be afraid of being seriously injured? Um, so uh, developing kind of a ranking system for buildings uh, I think would be very important. And then I think for some of the, the larger apartment buildings that are soft story, um, that we, you know, we need a, a mandatory program to fix, fix those buildings, not overnight and not without financial help or some form of incentive, but uh, a phased program over time that's reasonable um, so we can fix those buildings. And then for the smaller soft story buildings, and that's, you know, a lot of San Francisco are those houses over garage, um, we need a lot of information and incentives and just coaxing people along because I think each of those property owners really wants their home to be safe enough. We want hand-holding, we want information, we want to assist them. We don't want to just mandate everybody do things. Yes, yeah, that's right. Now, I often hear people talking about this concept of resilience. Um, we, as you improve your building, you are adding cumulatively to the citywide resilience. What does resilience mean? That is a great question. And so what SPUR has done is try to define uh, resilience in terms of recovery. So when you look at what happened in New Orleans after Katrina, you can see that's a city that lost, lost its, a lot of its people, um, has not recovered its building stock. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not a good situation. I think everybody can agree. And what we really want to 
see in San Francisco is to, San Francisco, to have San Francisco rebuild well and quickly after a major disaster. And so we've actually defined what that means for all of our lifelines, so for how, how do we need our gas lines to perform after an earthquake, how do we need our water to perform, and then our building stock as well. So uh, we've put forward the goal of having 95% of our homes um, to be ready for shelter in place after a major earthquake. And that way people can stay within the city. We don't lose our workforce. We don't we don't lose the people that make San Francisco so special. We we keep everybody here and that allows us to recover um, our economy um, and everything uh, because it's so interdependent. So that is a difficult goal, but I think we can achieve it over the long term. So thank you very, very much for hosting us and for hosting this great exhibit. And thank you very much for joining us for Building San Francisco. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Lawrence Cornfield with Building San Francisco. We're doing a special series called Stay Safe about staying in your home after an earthquake. And today we're going to be talking about the Neighborhood Support Center that helps people providing community services when they're staying in their homes. We are here at the Spur Urban Center on Mission Street in San Francisco with Sarah Karlinski, the Deputy Director of Spur, and we're talking about the shelter in place or safe enough to stay uh, ex exhibition that's uh, at their center. And part of being able to shelter in place in your home is to be able to find a place nearby where you can get the services that you might not have in your home. And that's what this little neighborhood support center is for. That's right. Is that right? Yep. And uh, what are some of the services that might might be provided in a kind of neighborhood center like this? Yeah. So we, we think of the neighborhood support centers as really being homes away from home. So after a major earthquake, um, there's going to be a lot of confusion. People are going to need to be trying to meet up with other people. They're going to need a lot of information. And so a lot of what the neighborhood support center is going to provide is that information. It's basically going to be like a hub where people can come to uh, get services, help, information, et cetera. What you see here on this table are uh, a whole variety of different things, some tools, uh, some uh, walkie-talkies, et cetera, but also um, maps of the, of the city, and uh, that, that's basically to help people um, know sort of what's going on within their neighborhood. You can also see over here we have um, a whole variety of water and canned goods. Um, we're really hoping that people will stock up for themselves at least for the first 72 hours, if not more. I know that I have a ton of uh, canned food and other other sorts of things, such as water, within my own home, and everybody should. But um, there's going to come a time where, where people are going to end up uh, running out and needing more. So that's what we've got right here. So this neighborhood support center, this doesn't have to be a major city-sponsored, uh, fully nope. stocked space. This could be in a small commercial space, even in somebody's garage. So as long as they have the information, which has guide and information and who to call for what, um, communications equipment, some power, seems like it's important yes. to have a generator. That's so right. You can have lights and charge your cell phones and so on. Um, and probably be operated by 
What do you think? Volunteers, neighborhood Volunteers, maybe, maybe members of NERT could really help yeah. out. Uh, people who, who live in the neighborhood that have some um, building skills could be helpful. So if there's a structural engineer living nearby or even an architect, they could really help people um, kind of understand what has happened to their homes right. and, and what sort of repairs might be needed. Well, here we are with some of the things that you might find in a neighborhood support center. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we learned in Hurricane Katrina was that people really rely on their portable electronics and their phone and all that. And so we say, here's a charging station tied up to the emergency generation, the essential yes. coffee pot. What a Maybe a computer you can check your email with. Yeah. So we have our charging station here. And then over here, you can see we've got uh, a whole variety of things. Um, including uh, the all-important different tags. So, Lawrence, do you want to talk a little bit about the tags? Sure. People always want to know what what do these tags mean? Do I have my uh, building? Is it safe or unsafe? These are the city official inspection tags. Being staying in your home doesn't necessarily require that you get a tag. Right. It just means that you use common sense and maybe get help from people who might be around who can help you evaluate whether it looks safe enough to stay. And then you might also want to know, um, because the regular city services are disrupted, you might need to know, for example, when trash pickup is, if you need to get clean water, et cetera. And so also in a neighborhood support center, that kind of information would be available. And we've got um, a little of that up right. here. Trash pickup resumes regular schedule on Wednesday. That's right. Please mark your human waste. That's oh, right. So this is kind of an information center, a communication center, also a, a center that hopefully will show people how they relate to their neighboring communities, uh, what else is happening citywide. And of course, this is sort of the ubiquitous form of communication. Uh, my cat is missing or call me or yeah, something like exactly, that. Yeah, exactly, because a lot of times, even even if you do have a, a cell phone, and many people do, if you're if you're really trying to save some of your, your precious uh, energy minutes, et cetera, or it's not working as well as it normally does, it is helpful to be able to have a message board right. um, so that you can get information to other people. And so um, that's what we're, we're showing here. And you can see, you know, people are going to be looking for their pets. They're going to be looking for rides. People are going to need to be um, sharing resources as much as they possibly can. Um, another thing that you can see here is uh, they're going to need to be spare tools and, and some of the things that people are going to need in order to be able to stay safely within their home. So we, we're just um, showing sort of a gesture to that with, uh, with um, all these different tools here, but then also tarps people are going to need to, to cover their windows if their windows are cracked or their roofs if their roofs are broken. So um, ideally, the, the city would be able to know where all these neighborhood support centers are and help deliver some of these uh, supplies. Right, where they could come from the neighbors who are willing to loan them out. Well, thank you so much for allowing us to come and share this wonderful exhibit. And thanks to you for joining us for Building San Francisco. Stay safe. TV, San Francisco Government Television. Hi, I'm Lawrence Cornfield with Building San Francisco, and we have a special program of Stay Safe today where we're going to talk about what you can do to your home after an earthquake to make it waterproof and to be more comfortable. We're here at Spur in San Francisco, this wonderful exhibit of Safe Enough to Stay, and uh, this is an example of what your home might be like after an earthquake. And we have today with us 
Ben Latimerick from TVN. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good to and, see you uh, again. And we're going to talk about things that you might do that you don't have to be a professional contractor to do to make your home more livable after an earthquake. Right. I want to talk about things that any homeowner could basically do with a few little tricks I have in my creative fun here. We have the comfort and then we have things like a little bit of maybe safety if your front door is ajar and waterproofing if you have a leak in your roof or if you have broken glass on the window. So one of the most important issues is keeping outside out and the inside in. So let's look at windows for a second. So Lawrence, let's assume that this window was broken in the earthquake. We have wind and rain, it's, it's blowing in. Um, one of the most important things that you need to do as a homeowner is secure the plastic properly. If you just take staples or nails and put them into the plastic, we're gonna get a strong wind and it's gonna rip it right off. What I'm, going to have it, what I'm going to have somebody do is they're going to have, this is an old piece of shingle. You might have a piece, everybody's got a piece of wood in their basement. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy. You take out your trusty... Okay, we are back in open session, and colleagues, can we agree not to disclose uh, contents of this session? Assembly. Okay, very good, and uh, we'll take that without objection. And um, and we have a motion on our closed session to we are in terms of uh, four or three names to the full board on July twenty third. Okay. And uh, colleagues will take that without objection. Very good. I take public uh, comment on that. Just, just to just. I think we Because we're live. Actually, the motion was made and adopted in closed session. I don't we're just think, reporting. I, we're just reporting that. I don't think we need to make a motion. Yeah. Okay. Notes. Very good. And so we will um, take public comment on our closed session. And see no one come forward. We'll close public comment. And um, so now we'll go into item number four. Item number four, introduction of new items. This is an information item. Okay, colleagues, I know we're dying to introduce new items, so uh, we'll go into public comment for item four, and see no one come forward, we'll close public comment. Uh, our next item. Item number five, public comment. Is general public comment. Uh, general public comment is closed, is open, and will be now closed due to no one coming for public comment. And our last item. Item six, adjournment. Colleagues, uh, we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.